0: Also, we're doubling up. We're, we're doubling up all the things. Back ups, Every back single up, thing back up. gets a recording. Everything, <laughs> okay. everything is being recorded. We're watching
1: everything. We know. everything. Can you
0: double up my voice just to make make it sound stronger than Chris's? <laughs> yes, and that's that be... we do that naturally. We're gonna add okay. that
1: bass. We're gonna add that some, bass. Some some
0: <laughs>
2: reverb.
1: I feel like you, you're gonna get the giggles today, Chris. I feel it. Like. I already have <laughs> it. I know <laughs> I, you I, do. I, I
2: just I just am out of control.
1: <laughs> Usually I have the giggles. I feel like today it's you. Um,
0: um, my cheeks hurt.
2: Hello, and welcome to Talking Too Loud with Chris Savage. I'm your host, Chris Savage, and this is a show where we talk too loud about interesting entrepreneurial problems. Sometimes we talk about different ways to structure your business. That can get me talking too loud. We talk about very delicious seltzer water. Basically, well, really, we only talk about spindrift, right, Sylvie?
1: (laughs) Only spindrift. You know what's funny, though? I know you're very pro spindrift. I don't like seltzer. I have to confess something to you. I just did. I confessed it.
2: I can't believe I, that. That's absolutely shocking. Uh, I'm <laughs> shocked. Why is that? Because it's too good? I, it's, it just tastes too good? Too- it makes you too happy? You don't want to walk around with a smile on your face?
1: I don't like carbonation, bro. Whoa, I don't like the carbonation. But I, but, but I like beer. But I okay. like beer.
2: Do you like hard seltzer? No. Okay. Like White Claw? So you like beer. You're willing to put up with carbonation for beer, but not for White Claw. Soda? You don't like soda? You don't like Coke? Classic Coke, sitting at the movies movies, watching a coke.
1: Always hated soda. The one time I enjoyed uh drinking Coke was when I was in Mexico and it was just like so hot.
2: With real sugar.
1: And it was real sugar and it tasted amazing.
2: So would you have like a mojito?
1: Yeah, of course.
2: That has seltzer water in it. I just tricked no, you. I, I'll I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> oh snort oh okay It's nothing new anymore (laughs)
1: snort is old news but okay i'll drink it i'll drink like i will drink seltzer in a boozy drink not a white claw okay like it doesn't quench my thirst i'm not like oh now now i feel sated water however
2: okay i want to be clear No one goes for a run and then says, ah, I'm going to have a nice cool spindrift now to quench my thirst. That doesn't happen. You have water. right? Or you have okay. a performance energy drink like Gatorade, okay? But you don't, <laughs> a don't have seltzer water. Drink like and Gatorade. that seltzer water is for lounging when you're sitting recording a podcast. It's a great time to have a raspberry lime spindrift. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, we could go on seltzer water for a long time. But for those of you who don't know, Sylvie LeBeau here, <laughs> she hates seltzer water. She's a podcast producer extraordinaire. Thank you for being here as always to keep me in check. Although this time you're completely wrong. <laughs>
1: Although this time, (laughs) although this time you're going to mock me forever. Well, what can I tell you, man? What can I tell you?
2: You know, I will say to stay on the seltzer water topic because I know that's what people want. They're here for talking too loud. They want to get. They want to get going. <laughs> I actually, a couple of years ago, one, you know, I was, you know, I'm a big seltzer water drinker. We got this this thing in the office called a bevy, and it was like a seltzer water machine. And you pick the flavor, and you put the seltzer water, and it, we we're drinking a lot of seltzer, so we got this machine, right? Like a lot of seltzer. <laughs> so anyway, got this machine. As you know, I love coffee. I love cold brew. I love nitro. All those things, and all of a sudden. I started to get coffee stains on my teeth. And I was like, oh, this is, this is weird. I've been drinking coffee for too long, for decades. I never, no coffee stains. And I started getting coffee stains on my teeth. Went to the dentist, looked at the coffee stains. She's like, I can get these off, polish them away, look all good, blah, blah, blah. Who's Months your later,
1: dentist? Let me holler at that. Incredible
2: dentist, but uh, no free promo, no free promo. Not getting it. Anyway, then a month <laughs> later, the, <laughs> um, <laughs> the coffee stains come back. And I'm like, this is craziness. Go back in. And she's like, all right, I have a bunch of questions for you. And, you know, I'm sorry if this sounds embarrassing, but like, are you, did you start smoking cigarettes? Are you smoking cigars? Are you doing other drugs? She goes to all this giant list of stuff. They're like,
1: yes, yes. I'm like, no, no,
2: I'm good at you. She's no, 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 no. And then we get to the bottom and she's like, now you're not drinking like a huge amount of seltzer, are you? And I was like, well, (laughs) I mean, Uh, I I mean, well, what's a huge amount? She's like, are you drinking more than four or five glasses a day? And I was like, that's absurd. I'm drinking 20. I'm drinking, I'm drinking giant Mason jars of this all day long. She's like, well, there's a slight acidity in seltzer that's been known to like wear enamel off on your teeth and you're getting coffee stains because you're drinking too much seltzer. And I was like, oh my God. So she got the coffee. Riddle me this. Yes. Yes.
1: Riddle me this how am I the one who's wrong here? After telling that story, I feel like I've been making the right move my entire life.
2: Well, seltzer, just like most things in moderation, fine. All good. You can enjoy a great seltzer. Silent Adam just had some. All right. Well, our guest today, fantastic guest, co-founder and CEO of Help Scout, Nick Francis. You won't believe this. Huge seltzer lover and Help Scout is a business that creates tools for folks to provide incredible support experiences, shared inboxes, incredibly beautiful documentation, tons of stuff like that. They're a fully remote business, been remote since the beginning. So there's a lot to learn from how, how they work. That we, Now that we're all having to be some degree of remote, I think it's going to be really exciting. Help Scout is also a B Corp. So we're going to learn about that. So it's a really fun interview. And I can't wait to, to jump in and talk to Nick about Seltzer. <sighs> Let's do it. Let's do it.
0: Nick, it's so good to see you. How are you? I'm fantastic. If I get to see you, it's a good day. <laughs> Same here. Where Where are you today? I'm in Boulder, Colorado. It's a beautiful day in Boulder, just like it is every day.
2: <laughs> oh, look at you. La-di-da. Beautiful Boulder all the time. Yeah, always. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, Sylvia, you don't, you don't know Nick, do you? You never met
1: him. I know of him. I've seen, you know I've, 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 seen, I've seen your face.
0: Now you know me. We're friends. Now, We've been yeah, talking for buddies. a few minutes now. We're great. I see that yeah. you have
1: moss growing, or not growing, permanent moss in your apartment.
0: I do have very good plant game on Zoom. Strong for, plant for game. For those that have not been on a Zoom with me, there's very good plant game, thanks to my wife. <laughs> Are they real plants? Uh, yes, they're all real. <laughs> only, only real plants for me.
2: Wow, that's that's so great. It's so great to see you, Nick. It's so great to see your plants. Um, for those who don't know Nick, Nick is the co-founder and CEO of Help Scout, and they are a fully remote business. They've been remote since the beginning. I believe you guys are close to 100 people now fully remote. Is that right, Nick?
0: Yeah, about 110 people these days and uh, having a blast still after nine years. That's incredible. That's how it should be. It's yeah. a long-term game, right?
2: Long the, the long-term game here is what is what works. So, how are you doing? How is the team doing? What's going on right now? Um, I mean, we're obviously in the middle of a global pandemic. You all were remote before this. Like, have you felt major changes? Like, how how has it
0: been feeling? We live in a wild world. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Help Scout's been remote from day one, and so to some extent. I guess the the curve for us as the pandemic sort of took over was a little bit easier, but it's, you know, uh, it's had such an impact on how people go about their day. And very little of that is about being familiar with remote work, right? Uh, we ha- now have a bunch of parents on our team that are having to make childcare arrangements and just having to figure that out on the fly in even sort of a long term plan, there's no end in sight, right? We have school upcoming soon and we have no idea. So to a large extent, we're very familiar with working remotely. But to another extent, that still didn't prepare us for the environment that we're in today, if that makes sense.
2: And you and I talked about this, actually, I called you up at the beginning of the pandemic, because I was like, Wistia has always been such an in-person culture. We've had before this, like 10% of the team was remote to some degree, but we definitely would not have flipped the switch to go remote. And one of the things you said to me that I thought was really interesting is there's a huge difference between working remotely and working from home. And that like, it's different to try to sustain a culture through working from home than it is to like be a remote business. Can you you kind of go into that in more depth?
0: Yeah, so... A remote culture operates in an entirely different way and more specifically they share information differently right so the most important challenge to overcome if you're building a remote company is making sure everyone has access to the same information and when you're in an office together a lot of that happens through osmosis right you're just kind of there and by way of people being present in the same room at least up to a certain point maybe 50 to 60 people, it just feels like information travels organically, Just it's part of the office environment. Well, in a remote team, you don't have any of that, right? There's, there's no information that travels via osmosis. It doesn't just magically travel through Slack or telepathy, anything like that. You actually have to start documenting everything along the way. And so the way I've always compared Help Scout to Wistia as our companies have grown is... You know the level of process and documentation and transparency and just kind of information sharing process that was required for you guys probably around 75 or 80 people we needed that that rigor at like 15 people or 10 people and so if you're getting into a culture in which you allow people to work from home just be mindful of the fact that the default state of your culture once you have people working remotely has to be remote because you have to share information in that, in that really transparent and asynchronous way. Like every, every all-hands, all-team meeting is recorded and you make sure it's, it's shared and people across the company uh, can, can watch it, right? You make sure everybody's invited to the right Zoom calls and, and so on. So it's the way the company shares information that the moment people start working from home, it has to, it has to shift. And, and that's, that's kind of what I was referring to. We've definitely seen that. I mean, since you
2: and I have talked, we, you know, it's become clear we're going to be in this for a long time. And we've taken the approach of we have to make our culture remote first now. And there's no other way to do it. We're still hiring through this whole thing. We're onboarding a lot of people who have never been in the office. We've had to revisit what our onboarding is. And it is, it is. I mean, we had a lot of systems in place, fortunately. And we, because we had some people that were remote, it made it easier, but it's definitely different. And we're starting to figure it out for sure. There's one thing actually I'd love your advice on, you know, I've had these meetings where maybe there's like seven people in the meeting, and the meeting seems like it goes well. And then I catch up with someone after it, and they're like, "Oh, I, I'm really surprised that you know, Sylvie." Uh, <laughs> Don't that, you dare! <laughs> yeah, I'm really surprised that uh, I'm just using it as an example, Sylvie. I know you always do this. That Sylvie um, like is having that project go in X, Y, Z direction. And then I'll, you know, I'll be like, well, I don't think it's exactly going that direction. I think that was like, that was slightly confusing. And, you know, we have back and forth. And then I realized after this uh, happened a few times that like, when we had an in-person meeting and there was any confusion between a small number of people, the meeting would end and then those folks would be walking to the next room or walking back to their desk and they would just get sorted out. Mm. They would just they would just naturally gravitate towards walking next to each other and talking through that part that was confusing. And so by the time five minutes later it's all figured out. And actually what's happening now, and we're working on this, is because it's really different, is If there's something that's confusing and you can't actually ask in that meeting, you have to actually follow up and directly ask for time or give people feedback, which feels intimidating and scary because like, it feels like a big deal to pull someone aside to give them feedback. But I've been learning the lesson, at least in this way, that if you don't do that quickly, it builds into a bigger thing and actually makes trust harder. So I guess first question is, do you see that same thing? And then we're trying to, to work through this, but how do you solve for that problem?
0: Yeah, that's a really keen insight that that you've made there. Something that I realized maybe two years ago is that it's easy when you're thinking in a remote first way to move towards, you know, your default way of communication is asynchronous, right? So you move more heavily into comments on documents, chat via Slack, whatever it might be, and less so into Zoom. And I found that getting alignment on things that may be confusing is really challenging through the course of asynchronous communication. And so by way of being remote doesn't necessarily mean that you should go all in on asynchronous communication. Like I actually found that I doubled down on spontaneous Zoom calls where probably 15 times a week I'm asking someone if they have five minutes to jump on a Zoom and that created a level of not only kind of speed and efficiency, but there's just a level of alignment that you can gain with someone when you can see their facial expressions, you can see the reactions. There's just, there's so much less that's up for interpretation as opposed to an asynchronous method of communication. So just, yeah, you, you do have to learn to use a variety in in meeting, like use a variety of hand signals and, and muting yeah. techniques and calling on people so there, there's already the meeting cadence that changed, but even post-meeting, yeah, just gra- learning to like, grab people for a quick Zoom, just like you would in the office to grab quick time, that should, there should be a lot of space for that, even if you're working in a remote way. Otherwise, things are just going to slow down or people are going to miss each other. And you, I assume, don't, are not in tons of Zoom meetings normally all day, right? No, I'm not in tons of Zoom meetings. I might be in three or four Zoom meetings, but I use Zoom between 14 and 16 hours a week. Okay,
2: which I think is really important, because a lot of people complain about zoom fatigue, and you don't get the same emotional response back when you'd be in meetings, it'd be fine. And I've seen the same thing. And we're trying to shift and is this is a harder cultural shift, we're trying to shift to less meetings and more asynchronous communication. And when you are in that mode of having less meetings and more asynchronous communication, the quick zoom meeting thing can work. But I think a lot of people don't they try to to keep their culture going as if it's an in-person company. And that is super challenging. Yeah. That's like, it's, it
0: drains the hell out of you. Yeah. (laughs) So it's it's probably just a spectrum, right? So if you're moving from being an in-office culture to, to working in a remote first way, Chances are you're going to have to resist the temptation to tap people on the shoulder and jump into Zoom calls at every possible moment. For us, we actually saw ourselves go the opposite direction, where I just saw people getting confused. And then I went to a retreat where everyone was in person, and I saw a problem we were struggling with for months get solved in the process of like three hours. I was like, oh, wait, yeah.
2: Which is also interesting because like helps, Help Scouts a flare remote business, but you always did retreats and stuff, right?
0: Yeah, and and that's another thing that's like, we live in a very different world. Even though we're a remote company, I haven't seen any of my teammates in almost a year. And that's brutal. I mean, as a leadership team, we get together four times a year. I get to see their faces and eat meals with them and break bread and the whole thing every quarter. And I don't get to do any of that now. So that's just another thing where this is still far from what we would consider to be normal.
2: Yeah, well, I I agree. And I think it's also, you know, one of the things that's like at least the silver lining for me is like, you know, we've had people working all over the place. We had people move home to their parents, people move to summer homes, people just in different spots. And we continue to work and we continue to get tons of stuff done. And I think like on the other side of this, Wisty is going to definitely end up being remote friendly forever like crazy remote friendly yeah. right like and, and i don't know where the spectrum will be defined if it's like remote friendliness first and then strategic in person but either way like pandora's box is open like they're yeah. no going back <laughs> yeah right which is which is really interesting because you I mean we're we're friends we've known each other a long time and i don't think you'd probably ever expect me to say this
0: yeah no because i i've to be honest i've sincerely admired The office culture you've built from day one. I've had such admiration for the culture. I wouldn't want to change it. There's no reason to be dogmatic about remote or not remote. You can build an extraordinary culture either way. It's really just about understanding the trade-offs and going about building an environment in which people can do their best work. You can do that either way. Nick, did
1: you work in in an office before Help Scout?
0: No. So Uh, you've always
1: been remote?
0: I've been someone over time that loves to work from an office though. Help Scout has a Boston office, for instance, uh, but we don't like we'll have three or four people there. And it's it's more like a, a shared co-working space where we can then have in-person events and we can do in-person onboarding. So we always onboard new employees, for instance, in person. Always. Every time. We'll fly them from all over the world in, in order for them to get their first week experience with a bunch of colleagues. Right? We understand and, and value That high fidelity level of communication for sure. So we've had offices, but it's, and we'll pay for co working spaces. So I, but I haven't worked in a traditional office environment. Like I haven't worked in a culture like Wistia in no way.
2: It's interesting because, like, I think we're definitely going to bring that culture back when we can. And it's going to be changed by this. And I think we're going to be more resilient. That's what I keep thinking is like getting through this is making us more resilient. It's it's causing us to have better communication. It's causing us to work better when people aren't in the same place. It's causing us to run meetings differently. And all that stuff, I think, is going to make us stronger. I also just think that the market for talent is going to change a lot. Yeah. Because again, if everyone sees like all, we were all forced to be remote for, let's say, hopefully a year, and then we can, things can start to go back to normal. But maybe longer after this. If someone's picking a place to work, I have to imagine that one of the things they're going to look at is, well, how remote friendly is this business? Because yeah, yeah I want to be in an office. I want to see people. But if I also want to live somewhere else for three months, or um, I think I might move soon because my partner wants to get a job in some other place, like most companies are going to be able to support that, or the great companies are. And so I think it's, it feels to me like one of those things, if you don't do it, in the future, it's going to be a, a huge
0: problem, and it's going to become much, much harder to get the best talent. I actually want to get your take on something. So uh, Stripe, I've been really fascinated with the remote culture that they've decided to build. So they basically thought of it as another hub in their business, right? So we have the remote hub, we have the San Francisco hub, we have the Ireland hub. Like they have all sorts of offices all over the world. And they actually decided, okay, well, each hub always has a separate subculture. So we're going to lean into that. We're going to build a fully remote hub where all these teams work remotely, but together. Right, And that's going to be separate to some extent. And, and logically, from an org design standpoint, it's going to be separate as well. I'm immensely fascinated by that model because I think that that could work super well. But I, I don't know if, if that sort of model might be of interest to you. I, I know it requires a certain size and scale. I mean, how are you thinking that's going to work? Practically, and in, even in terms of the org design at Wistia, as you go back to the office.
2: Yeah, so I mean, I've I've seen their model too, and have found it to be very interesting. And obviously, all many of their offices are that that are not the remote the remote hubs are now remote, which is that's I think the question is how can you dis how much do they have to disentangle them after but we've seen with teams at Wistia we've like our infrastructure team has been fully remote for a while. And we thought it was smart that that team was remote and that they worked together and they had their own separate slightly separate and evolving culture in the team. And it turns out for that job in particular is like a, a good job to be remote. And so that that worked well for us. But one of the other things that happened is like As we diversify Wistia in many different ways of one of those having a lot more parents, uh, flexible working, which Wistia was already flexible working, flexible working became way more important. You know, picking kids up from school, school breaks, things happening, kids events, what have you, people being sick. And so I just think like we were already trending towards a thing where... I honestly didn't know if people would be in the office on a particular day. And there might be a lot of people in the office. There might be 80 people in the office. But I'd Slack someone, no clue where they are. Back and forth, back and forth. And then I discover they're somewhere else entirely. They're like another part of the country. I'm like, cool. Like, that was already happening. And we'd already gotten to the place where, for every meeting, the first thing someone would say is, like, in person. The first thing someone would say is anyone remote. And, like, the culture had shifted to ask that question. And so... I think it helped with our shift to the current state of things. But also, I just thought of it all as a spectrum of flexibility. And it's like, before we were like, pretty flexible. And that like, the average person was probably in the office four days a week. And I think after this, we're going to be way more flexible. But I would guess that by team throughout the organization, and as WISTA gets a lot bigger, I could see us doing something similar, which is like, yes, these teams are basically always fully remote. And these ones tend to be more in the office, because we think that It's for whatever reason, you know, like the work that they're doing makes slightly more sense to be in person on a uh, more frequent basis or what have you.
0: And as long as you're accepting a communication and information sharing cadence that is remote first in principle, I think that can totally work. Right, you can offer the ultimate flexibility to folks, and I, I really love that. Like when I was living in Boston, I was in a tiny little apartment. I wanted to commute to work every day, yeah. uh, and thought that was a really important part of my workflow. So being able to offer both options to folks does seem like a really great great deal.
2: But I think you're right in terms of figuring out how to like be crystal clear. Like this team, we think is really going to be remote only forever, mm. and that's just how it is, and that's going to be how they grow. is is pretty different than like this is really flexible, but we expect to see you every week or every other week or every month. That's, those are big differences. Yeah,
1: I've worked at an office before. I've worked remote before. And I think the thing that I miss most is like that casual, that sort of like casual connection that you have to your coworkers. Like, let's go grab a coffee. Let's go take a walk around the block. How, how do you sort of like inject that casual connection into remote first culture?
0: Yeah. So the reason I say that you can build a great culture and a great team in a remote environment or in an in office environment. It, the only difference is it's a series of trade-offs, right? And one of the trade-offs that you make with remote work is that you're, you're saying, okay, well, it's going to be a lot easier for people to get deep work done. They can just focus for a block of time much more easily, just relatively speaking, than they would in an office. But the trade-off that you're making is that there's no water cooler there's no way to go get beers after work, there's no way to just go for a walk, there's no way to do any of that stuff. And so what you have to do as a remote company, like the first thing I did when we built a remote company, I'm like, okay, that's a trade-off that I have to be very intentional about acknowledging and addressing. So I get the productivity benefits in terms of deep work, but I also need to cultivate different ways for teammates to get to know each other. So a lot of times, that does end up being the retreats twice a year. It's little offsites that we do. It's also a program we have called Fika, uh, where you're just randomly paired up with people on the team to hang out and shoot the shit.
1: I love uh, that.
0: Yeah. So Fika is a Swedish term for getting coffee together. Um, but there's you just have to design or, or install like spontaneous or not so spontaneous moments where people can get to know each other very intentionally because it won't happen organically. It's not, that's one of those things that just don't happen via osmosis. So if you, but you can very easily structure it. Like I think one thing GitLab does, which is really interesting is they make, uh, make it so that every 30 minute meeting ends five minutes early and every meeting longer than that ends 10 minutes early. And employees are encouraged to join meetings early. And so that five or 10 minutes leading up to a meeting is for people to just hang out. And I think that's a really cool strategy as well, just to encourage people like, hey, drop into a meeting early and get to know your colleagues, just kind of talk about what, what they're doing for the weekend or anything like that. So it's, and they, they document that stuff, because without intention, it will not happen. And that's just, the, that's the important thing to, to be aware of. Speaking of intention
2: and having intention, you, you all made a pretty big shift recently in terms of how Help Scout is actually structured. Yeah. And so Help Scout is now a B Corp.
0: Yeah. A public benefit corporation. We are. Yes.
2: Yeah. What, what is a public benefit corporation?
0: So a public benefit corporation, the way I describe it to a, a lot of people, and look, I know Wistia operates this way. This is basically just a way of putting it on paper. And, and so a C corp operates basically with one fiduciary, which is to shareholders, right? Your one duty is to Shareholders and creating shareholder value over time. That is the operating principle of a C corp a a PBC a public benefit corporation actually has three fiduciaries Uh, Shareholders are one fiduciary uh, The community that you serve so for us. It's the small business community uh, and our employees Those are the three like legal fiduciaries uh, that we have and I, I would add our customers to the mix of course so as a fiduciary of the business, when I go into a board meeting, I am required to think along all three of those vectors instead of ultimately just creating shareholder value. And then becoming a B Corp is actually a separate certification above and beyond being a public benefit corporation. So there's a nonprofit or, uh, organization called B Lab that does these certifications and really gives the movement teeth, right? So it holds you accountable to certain environmental community, uh, and corporate standards that are really tough to meet and, and really like they just, uh, what's it called the, the term greenwashing? Like there's a lot of companies that talk a lot about the environment and talk a lot about doing good in the world and, and having a purpose, but not a whole lot of companies really following through. So B Corp was really created to give the whole movement teeth and make it so that businesses can put a stake in the ground and say, we do care about these things. And here's proof. Uh, and so we decided to take that on as a company. Uh, we do have shareholders, we have accepted institutional capital. So it's complicated from a cap table standpoint, Savage, like ours it's is way more complicated. more complicated for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. yeah so, no, I mean, and, it, and yeah, and I think like, it is very cool to hear. I mean, as you know, like we did our buyback. So we could be in control. So we could do what you're talking about, right? Like to put our team and our customers in our community first. Like that's the point. And we didn't change the structure of business in the sense that we are still C corp, but we did change the structure of the business in terms of we raised 17 million dollars <laughs> of debt to to buy back control, so we could do it. Like and it is interesting that your fiduciaries really are shareholders, and so you have to get those on, get them on board in some way. And I, it was I mean it was tough for you guys to do this, right? It was not an easy, fast process.
0: Yeah, it took about a year. Uh, all in. So you just have to educate yourself, uh, understand what the standards are, and then you spend a lot of time. It's sort of like going through a HIPAA or SOC 2 compliance situation where you're just kind of going through this audit. And you're what I love about the process is that it forces you to create these programs in the company that are like, yeah, of course I want to do this. Of course I want to like buy back and do a uh, carbon emissions buyback to make sure that I'm net net negative or net neutral in terms of that stuff. I want to have a company recycling program, a community service program. So it just re- forces you to document a number of these things. And so it took us about a year and then maybe three months to just kind of go through the final application and get a, and get approved. But really beautiful process. And I, I have no regrets. I w- I'm really glad that we did it.
2: And is has it changed the business? I mean, it must have.
0: It certainly holds us accountable to a standard that we're all excited to be held to, right? I, I just continue to come back to those three fiduciaries. And we're lucky to have an investor that's on our board that's also B Corp. <laughs> uh our biggest investor actually is also a V Corp. And so Oh really? Yeah. Foundry group here in Boulder. So they they were Vcorp Corp a few years ago. And so oh, wow. for that reason we didn't really have to do a whole lot of education. Like the a lot of the signatures I had to get were a pain. But ultimately nobody disagreed in principle with us having these three fiduciaries. And uh, so I wouldn't say that it's changed a whole lot because in principle, again, like we're, we're a lot like Wistia. Like we think about these things anyways. And so it hasn't changed a lot of the day-to-day work, but it certainly holds us accountable in a way that's that's really welcome.
2: That's awesome. And it also makes sense like with more shareholders at play. Right. Like be, making getting them aligned that you are going to invest in your community, that you're going to invest in your team, you're going to invest in your customer base in a different way is pretty important. That's awesome. I mean, yeah. I know that was, I remember talking to you and you're going through and you're like, this thing is taking forever. Yeah. This is like, yeah. this is a lot of work.
0: Yeah, it, it was a lot of work. But you know, it, it's the kind of thing that allowed us to offer, you know, upwards of $150,000 in customer relief over the last few months to, to customers that were really facing some dire situations as a result of the pandemic. And nobody even batted an eye. It was like, of course you have to do that.
2: Yeah. That's awesome. What has you talking too loud right now? You know, I, I'm always talking too loud. I'm talking too loud about, you and I were talking about Spindrift before and I almost (laughs) spit my Spindrift all over the screen, but what, what else has you talking too loud
0: other than Spindrift?
1: I would have Uh, killed you. (laughs) Not on the microphone.
0: We we do share a love of Spindrift, both of us. (laughs) So I always love to talk loudly about that. Uh, but, but generally I think it's just the, this next evolution of capitalism, like, how does capitalism continue to evolve? Because what we're seeing is uh, what I love about capitalism is that the customer chooses, right? It's always up to the consumers. And what consumers are saying today is they want the businesses that, that they do business with to share some of their values. They want those businesses to represent certain principles and purpose. And they, they want those businesses to be good corporate citizens and to give back to the community and the environment in ways that previously companies haven't really been held accountable for. And so as an entrepreneur uh, and, you know, we have a, a relatively small group of people, of other entrepreneurs, Chris, that, that we talk with that kind of share these values, but it's not a very common way of building businesses. So as a founder, I'm just thinking a lot about, okay, like what can we do? So 10 years ago it was, what, what can we do to forward the remote work playbook? Right now, it's what can we do to forward the next generation of entrepreneurs that want to build purpose-driven companies and participate in capitalism to to a a great degree, but also to give back to to everyone else and, and to really run the business with a purpose. Like, What does that mean? How can I help to influence that playbook as a company that's raised money? How can I help other entrepreneurs that come after me navigate that? Because uh, VC, in many ways, is kind of in direct conflict <laughs> with with some of these purpose-driven, long-term-focused uh, uh, ideals. So, how,
1: can you guys break yeah. down how? Like, I'm a startup newbie. Can you guys break down how VC is in contrast to that? Like, that sounds interesting. I just don't. I don't. I can't wrap my head around it.
0: Yeah. So, in in principle, venture capital or institutional investors they're investing other people's money, right? So they raise money so that they can invest it into other companies. And uh, when they raise $10 million, let's say, they're supposed to be delivering a return on that investment, let's just say $30 million. And there's always a timeframe associated with that. So they call it IRR in VC world, internal, internal rate of return. And so when you're investing other people's money, there's always going to be a time frame associated with when the return is going to, to come about for that money. Right. So the challenge is: how do you operate a company that's really built for the long term? Like Chris and I both want to build companies that outlive us, <laughs> but then raise money where uh, there's a different expectation in terms of creating liquidity and value for shareholders. There's I'm not saying they're in direct conflict, but I think that it's an open discussion that has to be had.
2: Yeah, I think there's. I mean, I think you were very selective in your investors. I didn't even realize that founder is a B corp. But I think the other challenge is like, you know, the investors are making bets across a bunch of companies at once, and they they don't want a three x return on a company. They want a three x return on their fund, right? And so to get a three x return on their fund, you need companies in there that get a hundred x return or a thousand x return. And so it's they're actually incentivized to push every company to the breaking point in terms of searching for growth. And if they find one of those companies, an Uber an Airbnb, I'm going to list other companies that are dramatically impacted by the pandemic. Uh, Yeah, yeah, like Bird, Um, all these things, giant businesses, insane growth will return a fund dramatically. But for all those businesses, there's a lot of other companies they put money into, they push really hard and they don't return anything. And sometimes those companies that don't return anything, don't return anything because they're pushed so hard. Like they might actually be an amazing $20 million business that could take care of its community and pay the team really well. And like entrepreneurs could do incredibly well and all that stuff, but it just doesn't, it's not even allowed to exist because the way the funding works. And so it inherently sets up a paradigm where the people who like invest in different ways in that world are pretty unique um, and pretty well known, like Bryce and DVC. Yeah. there's Eric Paley. There's some people in there who really the founder group that like talk about investing
0: differently, and they talk about their values a lot. And when you talk about a breaking point, really what we're talking about is liquidity. That's the big challenge, right? So uh, making it so that Help Scout stock or Wistia stock becomes sort of liquid is a pretty complicated and convoluted process. Uh, so just kind of working your way through that is quite a challenge and and i want to help write the playbook for how a purpose-driven company can stay true to their values and build a long-term business while you know along the way at least early in the journey using institutional capital or vc to help fund that journey because it's been really helpful for us you know we've we've grown more than 9x since we raised money uh, it 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 certainly helped lot
2: da no big deal
0: right but but now we're like moving on to the next thing right and i'm thinking about building a long-term business but also yeah. creating the 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 liquidity that i that i committed to and that that whole realm is just far too complicated right now and i think in the next 10 20 years we're going to find ways to simplify it so nick would you ever consider
2: listing the the company like not not going public on a public stock exchange that exists today maybe but like would you consider allowing there to be liquidity i mean i know there's yes. people working on the,
0: the you would do that yes 100 um, percent. okay so brian halligan at hubspot said something and i think i learned this through darmesh but he said he loves being a public company because he gets a daily input as to what the value of the company is right he gets a daily like sort of objective statement of what the mark how the market values the company and that's really valuable Companies like ours don't don't have that sort of feedback from the market and so in principle I think it's a good thing the problem is the way public companies uh, work today and the way that uh, wall Street the, the demands that Wall Street has of them kind of forces them down this path that's relatively unhealthy and so Eric Reese, the guy that's behind the lean startup movement has, actually got an SEC approval for a really compelling public market called a long-term stock exchange that really rewards shareholders that buy and hold for the long term uh, through a number of different ways, discourages any sort of quarterly guidance, uh, which can be very toxic for, for companies from a growth standpoint, and has a lot of other operating principles that are phenomenal. So I don't think, in principle, operating a public company is a bad thing. It's just it's a little bit broken and we need some different rules that allow companies to think in a long term way. And so long term stock exchange is really compelling to me. Uh, I don't know if that's something that we'll end up uh, pursuing in the long term because you still have to build a hundred million dollar revenue business to think about taking com- a company public. We're still a ways away from that. But I, I think that, again, there's, there are people thinking about this, like Eric, that are saying this system is broken. We need to create a different system for the next generation of entrepreneurs to build great companies.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because I agree with you. Being in the public stock exchange today doesn't seem like a great fit for companies like us that are right. really values-driven and like have other parties that we care about that are not just shareholders. That's inherently the the opposite. But it is interesting to think that like you, it's from a marketing perspective as well. Like every time you say that you're going to do something, you get instant feedback on it. Right. And you know, that instant feedback turns into the ability for you to raise money or get cash at cheaper rates if the the ideas are good and at more expensive rates if the ideas are bad. So it it does incentivize the marketing cycle that causes people to pay attention and root for you or root against you and then also gives you better data on what people think about the things you want to do. I mean, it's really interesting here to see some of the public companies that like say they're going to do something they haven't begun working on at all. And then like Disney Plus, I think, was like that. Like they announced they're going to do it before they had done anything. Like zero work. They barely even told the team, but the stock popped like crazy. And they were like, well, I guess people really want this. And we gave a timeline of three years, so now we have to build it. And, you know, they're going and building the thing. And it's high expectations because they described what it is. And it's really interesting to think about that as like a motivator and like research and feedback.
0: Yeah, and, and there's a lot of different interesting... I'm sort of starting to understand a lot of the secondary stuff that happens behind the scenes. There's quite a small community of secondary sort of funds and investors and a whole different world there that I'm just learning about. So uh, the, the goal is to just develop a playbook that's a little bit more clear for entrepreneurs to build long term businesses and do so uh, through a variety of different, you know, fundraising or financing options.
2: So does this tie in? I mean, you have a, a
0: new series that you guys just launched? Yeah, that you all just launched against the grain. Does this tie into that? To some extent, just in terms of the Building that next generation of of companies. So the thesis behind Against the Grain is we wanted to find a bunch of companies That were fiercely committed to their craft their community and their customers and as a result they thrive in a super crowded market Right like you look at the, the business on paper. It's like there's no way they should survive and somehow they absolutely just go gangbusters because of this fierce commitment they have to their people their, their community, their customers. And so uh, we just wanted to tell more of those stories. The path to building a high-growth, winner-take-all Uber company is well-worn, and Savage and I are sick of it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'd rather tell different stories. I'd rather tell stories about companies, and, and in particular, most of them are small businesses that care so deeply about the right things, or at least what, what we would define as the right values and the right way to build a company. And if we're not talking about that, if, if we're not telling those stories, then what is the next generation of entrepreneurs really going to have to look upon to build their company, right? Like they're just going to aspire to uh, the people totally. that, are, that are featured on, in the Forbes list or whatever, right, or on TechCrunch. And that's, I think they're being misinformed. <laughs> and, and I want to find another way to... Uh, to tell stories of, of great businesses because I looked at like, you know, we had very few companies to look at at the time it was like I thought Kickstarter was doing interesting things and Basecamp has always done a really interesting thing MailChimp has always done really interesting things, but you can kind of count them on your hands these are yeah. like, purpose-built Companies that were really created for the long term. and just had a whole different set of values. I want more of those stories I don't want to count them on my hand anymore. Damn. That's
2: awesome. I'm, well,
0: yeah.
1: I'm trying to go to business school now. I'm ready. I'm ready, <laughs> to, be, ready to be next gen. Australia. Do it.
0: Do it, Sylvie. Make it happen. <laughs> let us Sylvie. proud. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us a little more about the, like, just some of the companies that you're going to be featuring in the series?
0: Yeah. So one company is called Death Wish Coffee. They make the most caffeinated coffee you've, like, ever had in your life. Wow. And I consider them to be, like, they're this aggressive brand that's all about living life to the fullest, right? Like, they are are the antithesis of Starbucks, and I love it, right? (laughs) It's just, it's so interesting. They have a a Facebook group uh, and community of more than a million people that follow, that are just so fiercely dedicated. I've seen very few brands in my lifetime with a more dedicated and loyal following than Deathwish Coffee. Uh, and then we followed a company called Naturalicious that's based in Detroit, founded by a woman named Gwen, a single parent who made beauty and hair care products for black people. And to see her story told as to how she built Naturalicious into a brand, it's patented, the technology behind their products. It's really beautiful. And the way that they've served, uh, in particular, the black community, is unbelievable. It'll bring tears to your eyes uh, just to hear them talk about their purpose as a company. And I can give you a hint. It's not about revenue growth. Uh, And then the third one. Spoiler alert. Yeah, right. (laughs) The third one is a is a bank, a small bank in uh, New Hampshire that's been in business for more than 100 years. And they're a certified B Corp, right? They're they're doing things entirely differently. And that The community is woven into everything that they do as a bank. So we wanted to tell the story of a company that was super old and traditional. And, you know, why doesn't Bank of America and Capital One just come in and kind of crush them? Well, because they are woven into the fabric of that community and that would just not work. And they absolutely thrive and they're continually being aggressive and kind of forward thinking and with the B Corp stuff. So those are the first few stories that we've started to tell. What's the the bank? What's the bank? Uh, it's something i can't pronounce. It's like pisca Takwata. I am so okay, bad. Cool. going to look <laughs> bad on the, I'm sorry guys. Sorry everybody at the bank. Pisca-taclida. Takwata. <laughs> yeah. All right everyone. It's uh <laughs> head yeah. on over. I feel really bad about that. <laughs> My apologies on the pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, oh really i funny. tried to skirt it right i, I tried uh, to yes, go no, around that's you're like what's
2: the bank what's the bank yeah. name? I, <laughs> tell me the name of the bank i'm sorry i'm Say sorry it? i just for some reason you know uh, the bank that we use at wistia now is called the provident bank and they're like over 100 years old and i was ready for you to tell me that, that oh, was, a bank. Yeah. I was like, oh my gosh it's gonna be sick <laughs> I, i've never been that excited about a bank in my life
0: <laughs> right yeah but it's it's cool to see people in really old traditional businesses that are that Are adopting a forward thinking way of of doing things. I love that. Well, it's amazing
2: because I think that like we, you know, so much of the startup ethos is like make this company, do it for four years, get rich. Yeah. Like, and like, (laughs) you know, first of all, it doesn't work like that ever. And secondly, like there are so many companies to your point that like thrive in highly competitive environments. It's like, how the hell did they do it? Yeah. And how did they do it without the data? That's what I always think. Like any company that's been around for 50 years, guess what? They didn't have the internet. Yeah. And they didn't no track data. every pixel. and They didn't track every single thing that somebody does. And they were still able to build incredible companies. Like, why is that? Because at some point there's a fundamentally like great customer experience. and There's a bad one. There's people who can figure it out and you can talk to your customers and figure it out. And like you, if you have values that are strong, you can figure it out. And it's just like, I'm so glad you're telling those stories. Cause like, they're not told enough and they're not seen as remarkable, even though like they are, you know, and it's going to be those companies that survived this whole pandemic and come out the other side because they came out and they were not afraid to speak about what they care about and like take care of their people and take care of their their teams
0: you said it perfectly
2: as usual oh thanks nick that's <laughs> why i wanted you on here just come in here just <laughs> tell, me how, tell me how great i'm speaking <laughs> um nick this is so fun to see you man i i, I wish we were in person though like now that we we spent so much time talking about that when when will we do that you think When do you think we're gonna hang out do you have a guess hopefully soon
0: man i'll be on the next plane to boston i promise Okay, sounds good. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> see you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The planes are still flying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll just, I'll risk it. I'll just put myself in a hazmat suit and make my way there. <laughs> uh,
2: okay. Nick, thank you so much for coming on Talking Too Loud. This is super fun. And where, where can people find you on the internet?
0: You know, helpscout.com. That's our website. We'd love to talk with you there. I'm on Twitter at Nick Francis. And yeah, that's it. All right. See you, ma'am. All right. See you guys.
2: You know, I I can't wait to see that guy in person. That was fun. But I, I think just sitting down in the same room and, and having that conversation would be just, just next level. Yes.
1: I want to hang out with him. I just met him. Yeah. Let's he- let. Yeah.
2: He's such he's a great. He's he's a great guy. He's got the long hair thing going. You didn't. I don't think you've seen a picture of his dog, have you, Sylvie? Elvis? I
1: have not, but I like the name he's, Elvis.
2: It's the classic situation of like Nick has this long black hair and he has a black beard, and his dog has long black hair, and like <laughs> you know, it's just like the classic <laughs> situation of owner yes. and dog forming into one cohesive being. One
1: one dog man. One
2: chilled one dog out dog man dog man who cares passionately about his community and his customers (laughs) and create a great experience, which is awesome. I mean, it's so cool that they've gone through the transition they've gone through because it's a, it's a lot harder. Like we never raised venture capital at Wistia. That was obviously a conscious choice, um, but that meant that we were able to dictate all of these terms ourselves. And like, we are the major shareholders. And so Brennan and I are, and that means that we're beholden to ourselves. Right. But in a world where someone raised a lot more money, how can they actually do that and be beholden, not just to shareholders. And it's cool to say that they did it. I mean, he talked a little bit about how much work that was, but like I know that was a ton of work. To yeah, he get, played to, it down a little. Yeah, he played it, it seemed, down. I think because yeah. it's I, he wants more people to do it because it makes it such yeah. a good thing.
1: I mean, it's also cool. He just he like exudes a, like a very like calm vibe. Like it's. I think when I think of CEOs, I'm like, ah, <laughs> like I, I feel like. Well, not you. <laughs> okay, you're the you're the exception. <laughs> I'm I mean, super that's,
2: calm that's my whole shtick is that I'm no, very very calm <laughs>
1: I mean that I mean that sincerely you're the maverick you're the maverick but he has like a very chilled out vibe which was a pleasant surprise yeah it's fun yeah. and he said fiduciary so many times
2: he did you know and then I said it he said fiduciary. Then you they, said it once someone breaks the seal on fiduciary <laughs> you know once they yes. say it a few times then I think we're all compelled to say it fiduciary Sylvie, when is this thing coming out? I know nothing about this. I haven't even—I've not been told a thing. I know nothing.
1: <laughs> you're just
2: the host. I'm just here.
1: Yeah, we'll be releasing every other week, but real excited for our next episode where we're gonna do more of this super fun banter, have some some crazy antics, and talk way too loud.
2: Awesome. And if you're and if you are still listening, please please rate and review the show. We'd love to know what you think. Um, hit us up with feedback. If you can find Sylvie's email, she wants your feedback. So send it <laughs> Send it directly to her. What's your email, I Sylvie? A,
1: I want that as much as I want to drink seltzer. So. <laughs> okay. Bye,
2: bye. See you next time.
1: Talking Too Loud is brought to you by Wistia. Hosted by Chris Savage. Produced by me, Sylvie Lubau, along with Adam Day. Executive produced by Wistia Studios. This episode was mixed by Josh Solarski. Listen to Talking Too Loud wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, rate and review us wherever you listen. And check out more content from Wistia Studios at wistia.com.